of nobody knows what the fuck is going on. So it's nice to have you here. A couple of housekeeping issues. I got all sorts of news stories we're going to get up and into. We're going to get all up into all sorts of details. I'm going to let you guys know all sorts of things that no one else is telling you. But before we do that, a couple of housekeeping issues. First is follow me. If you haven't followed me already, Robbie the Fire on Twitter. Uh, The show is getting a little bit more technical, interviewee. Real news stories, calls with Yosef, but uh, a lot of the jokes I was doing on the show, I just fire them out on Twitter, and uh, it's quicker. You fire them out right away, people tell you they liked them, and you move on with your life, and then I don't really do the little short jokes on the show. So follow me over there. I've also been putting out a web series, uh, Quarantine for My Car, and uh, it's been a lot of fun because people like that I know have been hitting me up going, dude, are you really quarantined from your car? Uh, I didn't, you know, I guess I'm a better actor than I thought I was. Here I was. I just thought I was going to say some dumb shit from my car and pretend like I was quarantined from there. And, uh, you know, people started getting concerned. I should have milked that. Have them, like, ship me stuff or something. I don't know. Uh, Also, you know, it's time for us. uh, We got to start growing the show a little bit. We don't ask you to do much, but rate, review, subscribe. Go into the street and yell at other random people that they should be running their mouths and listening to running their mouths. Uh... Also, we did a Zoom the other the other uh, the other night. I don't know where you were. I tweeted about it. That's why you should be following me at Robbie the Fire. I threw out an open invite for anybody to come Zoom live with us, and uh, it was not the smoothest operation. At the end of the episode, me and uh, Yosef do give the recap on what took place on this uh, Zoom call. But be on the lookout because we might do that again. Also. This is going to be a crazy episode week. I think I'm going to dump five or six episodes. Uh, As a heads up, after that, I think I'm going to take a week or two off from the podcast. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving you guys hanging. I got this other project that I want to work on, and I keep not working on it. So might take a week off or two off from the podcast. But I got a ton of podcasts coming at you. I got this one coming up with some random news stories uh, I want to share with you guys. I got Yosef at the end. Next episode, I've got Professor Professor Lady on uh, giving us a whole breakdown on why uh, we're being cucked here and that this whole thing is a big old giant sham. Then I got this random college kid who's going to explain the repo markets to us. Then I got the fag cast guys and then I got the tasting anarchy guys. So this is going to be a wild week. Plus I'm putting out, uh, all of the, uh, the, the quarantine from your cars and I'm doing all this while I'm still pretending that I'm working a full-time day job. So, you know, I got to get back to some actual, uh, life shit. And, uh, the last thing is I've ordered some new cords and cables. So all these calls are not in the best quality. I have an internet mic, uh, and I also got a cord for being able to plug 
phone calls directly into the Zoom that I record off of. So in the future, we will definitely have better quality on everything that we're doing. And that's it. Look, we got through the whole housekeeping section. That was all the announcements. I'm not going to make any more announcements through the entire rest. There might be one or two up, but for the most part, no more announcements. Now we're in the actual episode and I'll tell you some shit. Before I get into the hard news, I want you guys to look up this story. It happened a couple weeks ago. You might have even seen it, but these kids from NYU emailed uh, the dean of the school and they're like, yo, lady, we're, we're, we're at the school and you're supposed to teach us how to sing and you're supposed to teach us how to dance and you're supposed to teach us how to do all sorts of fruity shit. But now there's no school. And unlike other online classes, how am I supposed to put on a play within my own house? How am I supposed to learn theater and arts from the comfort of my own home? Maybe I should get a refund because apparently this academic NYU adventure that I'm on costs $60,000 a year. And the lady... Instead of just being like, well, no, you gave us the money, and uh, even if you showed up every day, we're probably still ripping you off, so I'm sorry, that was your fault for having parents that decided to spend 60 grand for you guys to do fruity things. Maybe I shouldn't be using language like that, and you know, I'm trying to be uh, an artist myself, so maybe I should take more pride in the theaters and the arts. Uh, Anyway, she sent back a picture of her dancing to Losing My Religion, which is not a very easy song to dance to. And even as the head of this uh, institution that charges people 60 grand a year so that they can learn how to dance, she's not that good at dancing to this song. That's how much of a big old fucking scam that whole thing is. And it's, it's really cringy, this lady just being like, no refund, here's me dancing to Losing My Religion. And I realized that's one of those moments where you just, you gotta be happy in life that you're not attractive. Because when you spend your whole life as an attractive chick, everything you do is a good idea. That's all anyone's ever going to tell you is, no, you you go, girl. That's the best idea. They're going to love that dance. And then all of a sudden, you end up being 50 and you're not that attractive anymore. And uh, you just think every idea that you have is a good idea. So if you're not one of the attractive people, you know, it comes with some some lucky things that people don't cater to you and they tell you that you're an idiot and then you actually work hard. So, you know, just a little piece of inspiration as we go into all the coronavirus talk. Uh, Another thing is a couple weeks ago, I was talking out of my ass, which is mostly what I do. And I was saying, I think there's some real risk here on the table that with all the information that we put out on social media, uh, like the powers that be could easily be scraping that information to take the temperature of the room of what do people actually make of this? And what I mean by that is if I were them, I would be scraping every single post on every single social platform, every single Google thing. I would want the numbers and I would like to see the trend lines of how many people are posting or commenting or thinking that this thing is a hoax. It's very easy to kind of figure out exactly, or when I put out this piece of information, what's the volume of people that are calling bullshit on it? If I present the information this way, how many people agree with it? It's like all these little sales analytics for how does the market respond to the information that I put out there. And so what's scary about social media and Google, the questions that we Google, the information that we put out on Google, even this podcast, you could theoretically get a transcript. I mean, I can't, but if you're government, big data, big machines, you can have a transcript of every podcast being created, know the download numbers on each of them so that you're only kind of scraping through the relevant ones and see what are people with large audience saying. You could really get a temperature of the hive mind. What are people thinking? What kind of uh, propaganda works better than others? How do I get people... So that's what I was talking on my ass saying was going on. But apparently the things that are actually going on uh, in the tech and data world is a little bit scarier than that. So I saw this uh, article from CNET and it was talking about a company in Italy um, through social po- through social posts 
are able to basically put all of our faces they from our social posts they've linked our names to our faces and then they've got the facial recognition software where they were even able to take footage of people that went out into public spaces in Italy and they turned to the government and said hey if you want the list of everyone that's breaking quarantine we can give it to you now I don't think that uh, from what I understood in this article the Italian government did not take them up on the offer but you guys have to understand that that technology already exists. The other thing that already exists is they can start taking heat signatures from people's phones with not even tracking where your phone is, or but just seeing that there's heat signatures of phones to see if people are getting together. Um, like if there's a large concentration of heat signatures from phones, then they know that people are gathering. Uh, and then Edward Snowden, uh, you guys remember him, he put out a little bit of a warning that once government starts syncing up some of the uh, data that we already have, like by wearing Fitbits and that kind of stuff, the amount of information that they're going to have on us and what they can start syncing together to go, hey, body temperature, you got to stay home. It's a little bit creepy. Uh, so here was an article from the Wall Street Journal um, that I want to highlight for you guys. It was called Health Surveillance is Here to Say Here to Stay. It's by Carrie Cardoro. I, I didn't pronounce that last name right. And Richard Fontaine. That's a cool last name. Fontaine, like fondue, makes me hungry. Okay. Health Surveillance is Here to Stay. How much privacy will Americans be willing to give up for a better chance of defeating the new coronavirus? China's approach to monitoring its infected citizens is famously authoritarian, with a new app telling users whether they can move freely based on a personal health analysis and not, incidentally, sharing the location with the police. Citizens and democracies would no doubt reject such intrusive measures, but the pandemic has spurred key countries to consider new infringements on privacy. British officials, for example, hope to roll out a new smartphone app that will alert users who have come in contact with an infected individual using location data drawn from GPS, Wi-Fi, net for, uh, Wi-Fi networks, and even Bluetooth beacons. A separate app developed by research errors outside of government will map British infections and share information with officials. Its developers say the UK government can delete the data at some point and pledge not to publicize the movements of infected patients. Data is already used in ways that many Americans haven't fully digested. For example, information from fitness trackers, which monitors sleep patterns, heart rates, and location, among other things, is already used in personal injury lawsuits, criminal cases, and divorce proceedings. You got to realize anytime you let a tech company into your life with some data, they're using that. Like there were some crazy fucking stories. They weren't that crazy. I just overhyped that. Uh, But there were some stories with the people that were doing like the DNA tests that I... all of that stuff was like, uh, some of it was even being sold to the FBI, or now all of a sudden, like, your DNA is just in the system. Uh, uh, so, okay, this is more from that article, less from my tangent. Back to this Wall Street Journal article. Today's crisis is the new coronavirus, but there will be a temptation to trade personal information for better health monitoring across a range of activities. Cardiac signature recognition can detect the heartbeat patterns at a distance, which might help doctors, but could also be used to identify individuals. DNA fen- Phenotyping may help physicians prescribe more targeted treatments, but might also predict facial features. Would any of this be fair game in the next crisis? So we already kind of see that uh, they got the technology to kind of pinpoint us based on our phones. They can even possibly, you know, see who we came in contact with, then label us as being a person who needs to be home because you are contagious. And here's the scariest part of all this. This is from a political article, uh, but... 
People who intentionally spread the coronavirus could face criminal charges under federal terrorism laws, the Justice Department's number two official said Tuesday. Mr. Number Two. In a memo to top Justice Department leaders, law enforcement agency chief and U.S. attorney across the country, Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, said prosecutors and investigators could uh, come across cases of purposeful exposure and infection of others with COVID-19. Because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of a biological agent, such acts potentially could implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes, Rosen wrote. Threats or attempts to use COVID-19 as a weapon against Americans will not be tolerated. Rosen did not say whether any such threats or intentional exposures have been reported or whether his warning was simply precautionary. But remember how they expanded all sorts of government programs and took away a lot of freedoms on account of, well, we've got to combat terrorism. Hey, we can tap that phone line. It falls into our terrorism provisions. Well, if there's a biological agent that you happen to have within your body because it's a disease called COVID-19 or whatever the hell the next disease comes around is, um, you can be labeled as a terrorist. And as a terrorist being tracked from your phone, I guess they can wiretap you. They can pull you out of your house. What kind of civil liberties might they be able to violate? Who knows? Are you scared yet? I don't know that you should be. Maybe this is all just, uh, you know, me being an alarmist in some sort of a way. Uh, But the point is, let's just kind of lay out some of the risks here of the way that we're interacting with technology and uh, what government might be able to do on the backs of the panic that they created or the real panic that exists to... uh, the threat of getting sick from the coronavirus. So this is from another um, Wall Street Journal article. This happened today, but Google said that it was going to create the community mobility reports. And you got to love the way that these guys are able to market something. It's got that friendly friendly world community in it. Mobility sounds nice. And so you go, okay, community mobility reports. Way to go, Google. That sounds like you came up with something really resourceful. But what that is, is uh, their word for being able to track people based off their phones so that they could tell the government where you're going if you have viruses. Uh, And then this was another Wall Street Journal article that I'm going to highlight for you. Once again, you're looking for the jokes. Go to uh, Robbie the Fire on Twitter. U.S. and Europe turn to phone tracking strategies to slow spread of coronavirus. The U.S. federal government, working with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is creating a portal that will compile phone geolocation data to help authorities predict where outbreaks can next occur occur and determine where resources are needed through the efforts uh, facing, though the efforts face privacy concerns. The anonymized data from the mobile advertising industry shows which retail establishments, parks, and other public spaces are still drawing crowds that could risk accelerating the transmission of the virus. Alphabet Inc.'s Google said Thursday it would share a portion of its huge trove of data on people's movements. Now, what's really creepy about that is they could say, all right, well, uh, we don't want anybody to gather. And then let's just say, theoretically, you wanted to be able to gather with other people that oppose government programs. Well, how are you even going to organize within somebody's house very privately uh, without them knowing that you're there. I guess everyone leaves their cell phones at at home. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe uh, we just have to watch more of these crime movies and buy more burner phones or keep cycling through different phones so they can't track you. But uh, the point is, on the tech side of this, there's uh, some creepy and weird shit going on. Uh, Now, the other thing that's fascinating is what's going on in the financial sector. Because it really seems to me like that thing was due for a collapse, totally independent of this coronavirus thing. 
Uh, and so if you have any understanding about what's been going on in the corners of balance sheets and the plumbing system, the repo markets, or what I'm now reading about with the euro dollar, uh, hit me up, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. And as I said, I think on the next episode, I've got hopefully a smart college kid who's going to break it down for us. Um, but part of what I'm just seeing as being kind of like the picture with that is that you had the housing market, uh, you know, that bubble burst. And I don't know that these guys ever fully took their losses on that and took that collateral off of the balance sheets. And I think that that's going to turn out to be part of the issue. Uh, but on one of these things, I was just kind of talking about what I understood of the repo markets and people were like, sounds like Rob's been listening to Jeff Snyder. I saw that in the, uh, YouTube comments, which I read. I love them. They, uh, you know, convinced me to shave my head. I've made life improvements because of the rippage that I've taken from those YouTube comments. Uh, but this guy, Jeff Snyder, I was listening to some of his stuff and I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And, uh, when it came to what I was saying, of the repo markets uh, previously, I think I was entirely wrong and that I was saying it seems like there's this major dollar shortage and that the banks are like kind of running close to insolvent that they're not even able to come up with the repo money to loan to each other to pretend like they have, uh, you know, that they're meet, that they're reaching their uh, capital requirements. Uh, according to uh, what I, at least what I understood from Jeff Snyder the other day is that they were actually just holding, um, they wanted to hoard treasuries and not loan them back to each other because even though they could be selling them on the open market as a, at a profit, they wanted to hoard these. Um, now, what's interesting about that, because I heard him saying that was from something he said months ago, was did they have some sort of an insight that, you know, interest rates were going to be going down, that they absolutely wanted to hold on to every single government instrument? Or is it possible, even worse, that something really terrible is going to happen with our currency and uh, things like treasuries or government bonds are going to be more easily converted into whatever the next currency will be or that those won't be, you know, while our dollar bills might become worthless, those bonds of actual, you know, government debt might be worth something. You know, as long as I'm scaring the shit out of you when it comes to random surveillance things, why not scare the shit about you out of you that uh, the currency that you're holding in your wallet might become completely valueless. It might be worth nothing. And the banks got some sort of an inside scoop on where their money. And but by the way, they don't even necessarily need to park it in the right places because they'll get the bailout first. They're not going to lose all that currency. It'll be us that loses it. But here's a, just a piece of the puzzle to hold on to. And I promise you, uh, even though we're taking a two week break and then I'll probably forget that I ever even had an interest in this. Um, I am going to dip more into the Euro dollar cause I do find that story to be fascinating. And what exactly, what, what is the scheme that the banks are pulling here? How exactly are they kind of making huge amounts of money, uh, and destroying the financial systems that none of us have a chance so that there can't be a good market economy? How are they going to continue to prop up these bubbles? How are they going to continue to get government to give them essentially free money so that they can just capture a spread on? Like, what, what, what exactly is this scheme here? And how are they pulling it off? I find that to, it's like the greatest heist story of all time. If you've ever watched a movie where a heist happened and you're kind of like watching the criminal, and you're like, man, these guys are a bunch of geniuses. Well, whatever the fuck these real bankers are pulling off on us that is not that well reported in the news. I read the news every day and I've yet to, I, I even, I went to school, money and banking. Everything was explained as a credit asset bubble when it came to the housing market. 
I never heard of this financial system with the fucking euro dollar and shadow money being moved to other countries where uh, basically it can operate outside of the Fed and so that you can create infinitely more money off the money. That's the fucking scheme. I don't even understand how it works yet, but we'll get there. But here's a piece of the puzzle to hold on to. Um, and I mentioned this on uh, the last episode of uh, Part of the Problem, but if you never read The Creature, Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, great book. It's all about the creation of the Federal Reserve and how uh, for all of time, banks wanted to create this basically backstop institutions that they could all create and lend out money together and never be at risk for insolvency because there's this thing that can bail them out. And it's the history of all the bailouts that have ever taken place and why these banks need that one bank lender of last resort so that they can go about, be reckless, know that they can be bailed out. They can also essentially, I don't know if he talks about this so much, price out other people from being able to be a bank and compete with them. Um, But more than anything else, they're in the game of basically... uh, Printing money. I put a, I put $10 into the bank. Now they can lend out 100 They want to get as much money out there as possible because the interest rates, the interest rate payments that come in, that's real money. They hand you fake money. It's fake money out, real money in. Most of the loans that they make are not because of physical dollars that somebody gave them. If you go and you buy a house and your house costs a million dollars, the bank doesn't have a million dollars. It never had that million dollars. What it means is someone deposited a hundred thousand dollars and so they're able to give you an a million dollar loan. So they want you to have that loan because you got to pay interest on the full a million. It's not like they just make the the, the coupon rate on the hundred thousand. They make the coupon rate on the entire millions. So they want as much of that money out there as possible. But then here's the other part of that picture is that I once, uh, I did a, a, a Rob's newsroom, it was the, I think the third one that we ever did, and it was on what went wrong in the um, with college campuses, uh, I mean with college costs, because you look at college costs and it massively outpaced inflation, and what you start to realize is that once government made funds available, um, basically it lent money, uh, that it made money available that you could borrow in order to go to college. It's not like all of a sudden everyone can afford to go to college. College goes, oh, look, there's we can charge more money now because people are taking these government loans and so the price of college went up. So now I just want to read you with those pieces of information. I want to read you a little piece of an article uh, from, this was, uh, I think it's the Wall Street Journal, I'm going to guess. Uh, but here it is. Mar- mortgage market slump weighs on banks. The market for issuing securities backed by commercial mortgages has frozen up, leaving some of the biggest names on Wall Street stuck with billions of dollars of loans that are rapidly uh, deteriorating in value. This market usually enables lenders to owners of offices, hotels, and other commercial buildings to unload their debt into a financial market and reduce their exposure. But it has stopped functioning properly since the um, novel coronavirus pandemic caused financial markets to go into a tailspin. Skipping ahead in the article. The bank group has been planning to sell most of the debt debt in the $500 billion commercial mortgage-backed securities market, but that debt market has become one of the many victims of the global financial system's volatility and sharp sell-offs. Property owners rely heavily on the ability to borrow money, but if financial institutions can't sell commercial mortgage securities to investors, they're going to stop making new loans to landlords. But now, let me ask you this. If none of this money existed in the system... Would all of like at every step of the way, would people have to borrow money in order to operate their businesses? So what it sounds like here is that the people who have these commercial properties essentially like 
they, they're borrowing money from the banks in order to maintain their commercial properties and to lend money to their tenants in order so that their tenants can afford to rent the place. But in other words, it's like if none of that lending ever existed, they wouldn't be able to charge like imagine this. I have a building and I say, hey, I'm going to lend you property. And they go, well, I can't possibly afford it. No, you can. I've worked out a deal with this lender and I can lend you this money in order for you to be here. But now if that exists everywhere, like institutionally, all that lending is available. So of course, like the price is going to go up because there's money that these people can swallow. Like if they, if people can take money, they will. And so the norm becomes, all right, the only way for me to open a business is in order to take on this debt. And it gets financed by the commercial lender, which gets financed by the bank. But the point being, if all that money didn't exist in the system, I don't think like college, I don't think it would just all be that expensive. So you got to realize it kind of starts with government making funds available to the banks, banks being able to lend it to people all the way down to just everything kind of being more expensive. And it's kind of the goal of the banks that they want things to be, they want to saddle as much debt on all of us at all times, because the more debt that's in the system, the more interest payments of real money that's coming into them. It's fake money out, real money in. Um, and now just to kind of show you some more systematic issues that I've just kind of come across that have, um, and there's going to be a lot more of them as we start to unpackage what the hell is going on with this bailout and who are the winners and how have we been, as the taxpayers been defrauded out of money to bail out corporations that have acted nefariously. Um, so one of the figures that I found is, uh, $4.5 trillion of stock buybacks, we pumped all this money into uh, companies where I guess we were hoping that they would hire more. They'd make investments in uh, you know, new goods and services, but instead they just bought back their own stocks, and that's why the stock market's been going up, up, up. Another part of the picture, and this is the credit asset bubble part, is that you know, I'm not going to, I lost my train of thought. Another one that I saw is uh, 600 billion euros in bad loans that uh, a lot of what's been, one of the big things that have been going on is we've been buying up like these bad, they've been basically packaging together insolvent loans um, in Europe, getting them off those bank balance sheets and being bought up by like uh, large American like institutional investors. And now all those loans are for sure just going to kind of go in delinquent. You know what? We could have skipped the last uh, three sentences. They weren't as coherent as the earlier piece. So let's just move forward. This is from Wolf Street, who's got some really great articles about, uh, you know, all the shenanigans that's going on. I just want to read a couple paragraphs to you guys. And this happens, this predates coronavirus. Um, this is, goes all the way back to an article that I read over there in December. So the Fed says these vulnerabilities often interact with each other. For example, elevated valuation pressures, meaning high asset prices, tend to be associated with excessive borrowing because both borrowers and lenders are more willing to accept high degrees of risk and leverage when asset prices are appreciating rapidly. So kind of what that means is like when, you know, with the housing market, they kept loaning money into the system. Houses keep going up in value. Everyone thinks, oh my God, my house is worth so much money. And so they go out and they spend money. And and everything's going up, up, up because they think that they have this asset that's worth something. Same thing with the stock market. 
government intervenes in there. Uh, they're giving all these money to companies. Companies are buying up their own stocks. The stocks are going up, up, up. And people are willing to put more risk on that plate because they think they have the collateral of a valuable asset, but that asset is actually just a bubble. So this is back to the article. The associated debt and leverage in turn make the risk of outsized declines in asset prices more likely and more damaging. In terms of high asset prices, the Fed puts commercial real estate at the top of its list after massive price increases over the past seven years due to low interest rates, but rents on commercial properties have risen more slowly. And as a result, the Fed says capitalization rates, which measure annual rental income relative to prices for recently transacted commercial properties, have moved down over the past decade and are at historically low levels. All right, skipping ahead in the article. And the Fed warns that a broad indicator of corporate leverage, the ratio of debt to assets for publicly traded non-financial companies, is at the highest level in 20 years. Okay, 20 years ago was the end of 1999, just months before a phenomenal stock market crash began. All right, skipping ahead, I want to highlight one more paragraph. Many of these debts were incurred to fund share buybacks and to fund acquisitions that don't produce cash flows for the acquiring company and to fund cash burning operations. And these debts just balloon and they need to be refinanced when they come due and interest payments need to be made and central banks are getting nervous about the effects of their own policies. Um, So I just wanted to kind of point out that there have been some systematic issues that even the Fed was aware of in kind of the uh, global finance world outside of what's been going on with this virus. And then here's the worst part about all this and the bailouts that are going to be to come uh, is that bad capitalism is that like sometimes some industries need to go away. They make bad investments. They're not really good. They don't really help us. And a lot of those people, these bad actors, are going to be salvaged because they're going to go, well, they need a bailout. Well, why do they need a bailout? Like, are are they so essential that this specific company needs to offer me these goods and services? So this is from uh, Yahoo Finance, Distressed Debt Balloons. Uh, which, by the way, the amount of distressed debt in the U.S. has quadrupled in less than a week to nearly $1 trillion, reaching levels not seen since 2008. Um, but most of the distressed debt um, outstanding from the U.S. energy companies battered by less travel of demand and an all-out price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. The capital-intensive industry, which, um, which finances shale production largely through debt, suddenly faces the prospect of deeper losses after oil plunged below $20 a barrel. Last month, it traded above 50 Now, here's what's interesting about shale oil. You might say that as uh, as a country, it was a strategic investment because the fact that we became the largest exporters, I believe, of uh, of energy, um, you know, we basically cut Saudi Arabia and Russia into a price war because we had all of this energy. But I've read this, and I, I'm not that well informed. I swear I'm not that well informed. I'm basically quoting you six books that I've read over the course of the 31 years that I'm alive, and I failed every money in banking class I ever took, which is just one, and I failed it four times until I finally, uh, maybe I cheated. I don't know. I finally passed it, but I finally passed it. But anyways, they always said that the problem with alternative energy sources is that they like at whatever price that they're profitable at, Saudi Arabia can always cut its oil prices to undercut you. Like the the fucking the oil there is just sitting out of the ground. They don't need to dig that low for it. It's not expensive to pull up. I think you put a spoon in the ground, you get some oil. They could sell it at a dime a barrel, and they make money. It's all pure profit. It's just it's it's sitting there. 
So the problem is, you know, you go, okay, oil's trading at uh, at a dollar a gallon, um, but I can invest in solar panel technology, and I think. I can come up with solar panel technology that after a $2 billion investment or whatever the investment is, I'm going to be able to sell this at the equivalent of, you know, the the the, the current price of a dollar a gallon. I, I can be competitive with gas at a dollar a gallon. But the second you do that, if like your your technology becomes widespread, you know going into it, Saudi Arabia can cut their pricing to 25 cents a gallon and you're fucked. So all these shale people, like... I, this can be forecasted. This was understood. They took on major investments. I guess like you might say that in this one, it's a strategic industry. And so it's actually worth us investing uh, in having, you know, our own research. But even that's not true because honestly, if we went to war with, uh, or let's say Saudi Arabia cut us off from their oil. So then oil would skyrocket in cost. And then all of a sudden shale oil would actually become, uh, a valuable asset. So it sounds to me like if oil is so cheap that we don't need shale oil, why are we bailing out an industry with a product that we don't need? It's not helping society. It's not a, a, a crucial good that without, like, in other words, if there's a concept that some people need to be bailed out because if they're not bailed out, we're, we're royally fucked here. Well, people that made bad investments in shale and couldn't forecast that, uh, you know, the price in oil could come down and undercut their profits so that they couldn't finance the debt that they've taken on, that's foreseeable. And then we don't need shale oil. Your shale oil is going to sit in the ground until uh, Saudi Arabia wants to raise their prices again. And then people that actually have the technology to or didn't overextend themselves on debt to be able to take shale oil out of the ground would be able to do it. But the shale oil one, that one's like a little bit more complicated. Here's more of a smoking gun. Energy isn't alone. Every sector except utilities is under stress. You know what's interesting about utilities? We really need it. That's probably why it's not under stress. With distress ratios growing by double or triple digits, telecommunications, retail, entertainment, and healthcare industries make up the bulk of the distressed debt. Retailers such as Neiman Marcus Group and theater chains such as AMC Entertainment Holdings have been as hard hit as companies are forced to close and customers are told to stay home. All right. Do we really need Neiman Marcus? Are we not going to be able to survive as a society? I don't even know what a Neiman Marcus is. I've never been in a Neiman Marcus store. I envision that they got shitty old furniture that maybe my grandmother would buy overpriced at a, at a Neiman Marcus store if it's high end enough for my grandma's taste. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck Neiman Marcus is. AMC Entertainment Holdings. What what kind of debt have those guys taken on while selling us overpriced movie tickets, knowing that that like you know that they were running some fucking hustle because you know they can't finance that debt? They, they they clearly they over leveraged because they said, hey, look at all this money that we can take on for our shitty theaters. We don't need movie theaters. Or believe me, if AMC went under, you think uh, Marvel couldn't like just start building their own movie theaters only for their own movies? Live Nation just did that actually for concerts and touring. They just started building their own stadium for specifically Live Nation concerts. Like, as a society, we, we can't move forward without AMC. Like, that's what capitalism is. You make shitty investments or you're not good at running a lean, clean, and profitable business that actually has goods and services that people want, you fucking go under. But no, none of these people are going to go under. All right, that's enough. I've read you guys enough articles for today. Uh, I do recommend, too, if you got the time, there's an article from The Federalist Will the cost of a Great Depression outweigh the risk of coronavirus? And on the same note, there was a great article in Zero Hedge, uh, How Gullible Politicians Promoted Global Economic Destruction and Threw Us Abyss. It's kind of a pretty good uh, like 
risk reward look at shutting down the entire economy on behalf of the coronavirus and whether or not we were looking at the most fatal projections on this thing and completely shutting down the economy on behalf of uh, basically an unwise decision if you're just kind of looking at it from a financial numbers perspective. I recommend uh, both those articles. Here's one more article that I want to highlight, and then we're going to get into it with uh, Mr. Feldstein. Uh, but one of the other things that's so scary about you know doing anything in the financial markets is that you're somewhat betting against the house because you never know when the Fed's going to step in and make a play that just completely destroys the picture. It's like if you were buying stocks in the last couple of years, it wasn't based on uh, fundamentals. It wasn't based on like profit projections of certain companies. It was mostly based on the fact that, hey, I think the stock market's going to continue to go up because the Fed's going to continue doing QE. It's all fucking Fed money. So here's proof of that. JP Morgan says short bets collapsed on $39 billion credit ETF. So bearish bets have evaporated on the $39 billion iShares iBox cash investment grade corporate bond exchange traded fund ticker LQD. You see, this is all like the nonsense. Who the fuck can understand this shit? JP Morgan strategist wrote in note Friday, short interest as a percentage of shares outstanding on LQD. A rough indicator of bearish bets is currently 1.48%, according to data. That's down from 17.6% on March 12th. So at March 12th, uh, their index for basically tracking bets that, you know, shorting the market or saying that the market's going to go down was at 17.6%. Now it's at 1.48%. So what changed that all of a sudden everyone who thought the market's going down suddenly decided, hey, the market's really going up? So the swing in sentiment is largely thanks to the Fed's pledge to purchase corporate bonds and credit ETFs, they said. The short base collapsed in spectacular fashion from LQD, the biggest HD, fucking more dumb fucking letters, after the Fed, um, after the Fed's credit backstop program. In other words, it like you know you're playing against the house. You want to short the market. You want to find do any sort of price discovery that says, hey, I, I think uh, I think Wall Street's out of control. You're playing. You're playing against the Fed. They're the best player. You never know when they're going to step in and go. Okay, unlimited money for blank individual, and uh, you get wiped out. All right. I think that was enough ranting about uh, random financial stuff. Now let's uh, check in with Yosef and see how he's holding up. We're checking in with the one, the only, uh, Yussel. It's uh, nice to know that you survived quarantine. Um, and uh, yeah, whoa, don't don't uh, don't say that I survived anything yet. That's rushing to jumping to conclusions. Well, it's this it, is a, it's been more this than is a marathon, baby. It's more than four. No, yeah. I meant you had the forced quarantine because your daughter, and you guys are through the fourteen days of that. And no one got sick. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods. That's true. This is, this is going to be a grind. This is uh, this, is, this is like the ultimate uh, ultimate survivor game. Yeah, I know. Not, uh, just because we had a head start at the beginning doesn't mean that we've uh, accomplished anything, really. Well, have you gotten better at being in your house with the kids? Is it like a practice makes perfect, or do you just feel like you're closer to snapping? We've definitely settled into the the new root uh, new routine, and it's it's. It's something. What what is the um, what is the new routine? No, like the basically me trying to like keep up with work for the beginning of the morning while also taking care of the kids and then 
working remotely, like, at, I could, like, start that, like, officially where I don't officially have to be on the clock with the kids at, like, nine-ish. And then, but even though, like, it's still, I'm very in and out because there's no real place to, to hide. Um, and then it's just, like, I'm, I'm basically my seven-year-old daughter's virtual school assistant. I'm like her, she's the boss of the house, essentially, right now. Why don't and, you, you can't. And I just have to, I'm, I'm like printing her out stuff. And like, she's, there's certain, at a certain age, I think, you know, like you just give them the computer and they're good to go. Like, probably at 11 years, 10 or 11 years old, but like, she has this like, schedule of school and she could kind of get into it but like if anything doesn't work out then you know like she needs help and essentially as i said um i'm like her assistant wow i i can make sure that (laughs) i cannot handle that which is uh why i you know don't handle it now what kind of what kind of drugs or drinking are you doing to get through this thing are you still keeping it pretty sober uh, uh, nothing like too crazy. I think like it's more like certain nights just kind of drinking Cut. some scotch or having some wine. Kind of loose. Nothing like nothing crazy. Nothing, yeah. Uh, to, to really do intraday. Yeah, I've been. Uh, uh, I've manage been. Manage it. I've been drinking every night, not like wildly heavily, but. Definitely come 10 p.m. I'm having a couple cocktails and uh, I've been mixing in some weed edibles on uh, on the occasional evening as well. Um, okay. But I, fig- yeah. I I have figured out the perfect weed dose where like you know I can go to Friday night dinner or that kind or get through you know family activities without anyone being the wiser. Right. So I understand that from your perspective, but I'm trying to have a family. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm like, see, like you're you're doing it to like um, survive dealing with others. I'm trying to make sure everyone's surviving, and I I can't really uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's a situation, but to tell you the truth, um, I, there's some nights where like it's back to like it's just I'm not doing. I'm just. It, having bad nights or whatever, but the, the, uh, quarantine and the mix of like no sports, I'm really like, I'm most nights. I'm just like going to bed at a reasonable hour. It's very strange. Oh, that is strange. Yeah. Cause you're, you're like, a late, I, you're a real late yeah, night guy. Like I feel very weird doing it also. Like I'm like, all right, I guess, I guess I'm gonna go to sleep now. Yeah. Nine thirty, and I'm like, and I feel embarrassed. But yeah, that's, well, that's been that's been going on too. Also, I uh, bet I bet part of why you're going to bed earlier is because uh, stress tires you out. And between you're in the financial markets, I'm sure your office is busy as all hell, and then you got to chase around the kids. Oh, yeah. So it, you're actually exactly. you're actually probably wiped at the end of the day. Um, I made the mistake. I've I've talked about this before on the show. I never start old television shows because uh, it shuts me down as a human being. 
I made the mistake of I started Ozark. The reason I started Ozark was it was my dad's birthday. And he's like, yeah, I just watched an episode with me. I'm watching the first episode. I had a drink. I sat down with him and then I had to finish the whole thing. Um, I quasi enjoyed it. Quasi kept fast forwarding through episodes to be like, I just got to get this done with. But in the overall, uh, it got better as it went. The third season was the best of the three. Uh, you, so you've already finished the whole three seasons? I finished all three seasons. and oh now God. And now I can get back to living my life because it was bad. I wake yeah, up in the morning. Seriously. Yeah, I'm telling you. You, I, you got like a drip of like the season one, the first episode. And then you're like, okay, I guess I got to knock out all three seasons yes and and oh my god and it gets to the point where it's not enjoyable it's like the middle of the afternoon you know you have work to get done but you're like i just got to get through i got to get through season two i got to just be done with this <laughs> and you're not even yeah, enjoying it like and that's not like a light <laughs> show that you kind of just get through <laughs> that's, a, that's a very there's some very heavy moments there. That's, and also it's it's, it's very yeah. dark Dark in content and also dark in lighting because I, I, when I, I've only seen the first two seasons so far, but you need to like fucking eagle eyes to see anything on that show. Oh, dude! Half it w- the time is half the time is just like squinting, like getting right up to the TV, trying to like make out anything because everything is so goddamn dark. It was draining. I'm not. It was. It was draining. Uh, it kind of, it does this thing where I'd watch one episode and my brain would just kind of like shut off or I couldn't like click into doing other works. So you'll be like, all right, I'll just watch the next one. It's that atticky wow. thing where you open up a box of cookies and you're past the point of where it tastes good, but you just got to finish it. And you know, yeah, I, I think you need to mix in some, uh, some easy TV watching, some, some lighter stuff also just, uh, cleanse the palate with that stuff. Yeah, so we spoke about this on the uh, first ever Run Your Mouth Zoom meet and greet, which uh, is not going to get put out. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a fucking disaster. <laughs> well, just to <laughs> a recount... A disaster, but a disaster nonetheless. You had, you had to be there for it in person. So here was the first disaster of it is I set up the conference. Uh, I'm going to say about 10 people called in for it. And right at the beginning, I somehow managed to close my Zoom window. And for the next five minutes, I sat there like an old man going, wait, how do I reopen this? Where's the screen? How do I find it? Where's the screen? <laughs> <laughs> then you had two hecklers that found their way into our room and uh they weren't like the fun kind of hecklers where you can make conversation with them they didn't have their uh cameras on so you couldn't see them and they just kept saying that they wanted to put things in my asshole and they were talking no, I, I think they said they just wanted to uh, not even put things inside your asshole but just kind of cheese your asshole right 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 with, He's, with the, like lube it up with vaseline and then and just cheese it a little bit, but not go full throttle. And then, yeah, it was it was weird. Uh, but clearly, they're probably listening to the podcast because how else would they be know about that Zoom? I I got no because I, I mean I tweeted it. I was not mad at them because when I was in high school, we used to watch. There was this uh, channel called Eminem. And M and I think it was Eminem Network. It was like the public access uh, in New York oh. City. I watched that too. Oh, it was great. There was the firstly they had porn on there late at night sometimes and they just had weird shit going on, but a bit that I did a couple times was I sat there with six or seven friends and people would be running a talk show and they put the number in for calling in 
And we would all call in, and every time that they picked up the phone, it would be me. And they'd throw me off the show, and they go, all right, we're going to take the next caller. And you pick it up, and I go, it's still me, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I would I would ruin their shows. So, And it was, a, it was a funny bit, and I can't get mad at two people then later oh, in no, life doing yeah, it that, to me. That, like, that was you know, perfectly fine. And ahead of – I didn't hourly say it to you, but I think um, – one one thing also you uh, you even though you had the access for the the like corporate Zoom that would have a, a endless time limit, you chose the free Zoom login that caps it at forty minutes. But I was gonna say like Rob, like it's not gonna be a full forty minutes because the first ten minutes is gonna be troubleshooting. The next ten minutes is gonna be like just trying to like make sure everyone's all together and then you're going to have like, and sure enough, that's how it's yeah. and no, it, it was exactly the way it went that at the end of it, I felt like we were starting to find, find a groove. We probably could have done another half hour from there and it would have been oh, really sure. good. But right when we found our groove, it was the end of the thing. Epic failure. It was, like, it, was it was also, uh, I loved it because even though there was like a time clock ticking away, I think it was only brought up one. Right. Like, it's a time remaining. So, like, I think at five minutes, I might have, or someone else might have said, like, oh, we got five minutes left. But, like, when it was down to 20 seconds, I saw it tick away, and I I think the Florida guy was, like, in the middle of this, like, big big uh, response or some shit. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is just going to get cut off half, halfway through. <laughs> also. This talking point. <laughs> and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I'm like, that's. That's just perfect. Like that, also, that's the way that whole thing uh, was uh, intended to to go. We we had another great Zoom moment that at the beginning of it, somebody's girlfriend was in the background saying, "Don't turn on the camera." They turned it on, and she wasn't wearing any pants. Oh, I didn't even catch that one. Oh, hot girlfriend! You, could, you you couldn't see a whole lot. It's not like you saw a full frontal vag, but you did see like uh, maybe a little butt cheek. Maybe she was wearing underwear, but there clearly was no pants on, and she was you know like scrambling to get out of the room from the the right corner. Or I don't know. There was a lot going on. Maybe uh, I just imagined that we had that moment, but I'm pretty sure it happened right like right at the beginning. That was like the first two minutes of the call. That's nice. Yeah, it was a it was yeah. a fun little Zoom moment. We had uh, we also had the Shedcast guys. They've done some uh, some shed improvements. They checked in with us that the shed is still up and running. Um, but it was I don't know. Maybe we, if we do it again, I'm probably not just going to tweet the link, or we'll have to figure out a different way to pre-screen who comes in it. Because uh, by the way. It's crazy of Zoom that if you mute somebody, they don't stay muted. They can unmute themselves. That yeah, is there's a setting on there's a setting that you could change that. Oh, so we we would need to change that. The other thing that was surprising to me of the Zoom software is that once you throw someone out of the room, I would think they should be able to pick up IP addresses and just like leave them thrown out. Those two guys were relentless. I I, I it got to the point I gave them the floor for a while and I was like, "Fuck, I can't believe I have to actually throw people out of the room, but this just isn't working." And then every time I threw them out, they just pop back in and then they finally they gave up. Right. It was, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, again, maybe under the non-free trial version that you had, there's, there's more powers to, to do that, to just like, uh, type in an IP address or something to block it. But you, you were like on the fly 
super flustered, not knowing what to do. <laughs> and you're, you're like, tr- like when it first got started, like, I don't even think like it was, everyone was aware that it was happening. Like, and then like, it got to a point where like, okay, this is just, these guys are acting really strange. And then like, that only then were you like, even in, at a point where like, okay, let me try to boot these people or mute them or, you know, whatever you were doing. And that's, <laughs> that's where it got to that point. And then it was just, yeah. Uh, fucking so are you doing a uh, Passover by your parents or are you guys uh, doing, no, we're home. you're doing social separations. You're not going. Yeah. We were planning on just being there for the, the satyrs and we're going to be home the whole time. All right. Well, but, that, uh, that's nice. You got the kids. It's a kid holiday. Oh yeah. But it's, it's, I don't know. It's going to be weird this year. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I'm curious to see because usually my dad has an audience and my dad enjoys having an audience for the, for the satyrs, which I get. And, uh, this year he's going to have my mom, my sister and me, which is the worst possible audience. Uh, so I wonder if he, no, no, we're, we're not having just, one sister. just the one sister, the one that's wow. been here the whole time. We're not, we're not having the other, any of the other family members over. We don't want to, uh, spread illness or receive illness. Um, right. also my old, my older sister might be forced to work on a COVID floor, which, uh, I don't know if that's been confirmed yet, but that's the, uh, crummy side of being a nurse practitioner, um, is that they are reassigning people and that could happen to her, in which case she's definitely not coming in, in the house. But anyways, they're not coming over for, uh, for Passover. So it might be a war zone where my dad is, uh, very upset at us for not being as engaged as he is, or, uh, hopefully he reads the room and kind of keeps it moving. But we're I'm definitely heading into hostile territory. Oh, for sure. It, it's it's this whole holiday is thrown on its head and no one's gonna know what uh everyone's out of their comfort zone. Yeah. It's a it's a holiday that generally you have some sort of rhythm that you've been doing for the the entirety, you know, year after year that you know keeping up like each thing and now everyone's kind of there's a monkey wrench thrown in to uh shake things up a little bit so i've had a couple yeah i've had a couple things that have gotten me through the satyrs all the way since high school one is i always kept a i used to keep a bottle in the uh kitchen bathroom and when i took bathroom breaks i would chug wine uh and i always i had a system for telling if i was getting too drunk if i started finding the wives of non-relatives at the table attractive. <laughs> Whereas if I was sitting there and I was kind of like, looking at her like, hey, you know, then I'd be like, all right, you've drank it enough. So that was one of my moves. The other one is I would excuse myself from the table a lot to pretend like I was helping out in the kitchen. Like, you know, I would just kind of gather items as if the table needed it. Um, I like I would take I would take my breaks. I would sneak away. In the later years, I would put the Slivovitz right on the table and pound some Slivovitz while the while the thing was going on. Uh, but with nobody else at the table, uh, it's going to be hard not to be there for the whole ride. And then here's another one which gets wild: is uh, there are certain items that a person is supposed to eat through the seder. 
uh, and my dad will eat like the actual proper amounts of each. And when you actually eat the proper amounts of each of those things, it's not a very, uh, it, it, it's not, it's not fun. So that might be another thing. Well, whatever, you know. Oh, every, come I, on. Stop complaining about that. That's what, like, a little too much matzo is, is really going to set you No, off. no, no. I'm talking about, yeah, I got to eat, like, the whole plate of lettuce twice. You got to eat the whole stock thing. Oh, you got, yeah. You're going to have too much lettuce, Rob? Come on. Oh, uh, dude, it gets it, it gets gross. Have you ever actually put out that the 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 mat for the proper sizes for each of those portions? Have you ever have you ever seen the a way salad? you eat? <laughs> like seriously, so even the biggest romaine leaf—that's like a quarter of a salad. So come on. All right. Let's let's, uh, let's uh, we could complain about a lot of things these days. Let's, let's not complain about the romaine lettuce at uh, Passover. I gotta say, I like eating the the stalk. I, I enjoy that, seeing how much stalk he yeah. can handle. That's uh. But the thing is, uh, do you guys have the horseradish root? Oh, good point. Probably not this year. Usually we do. Usually I mix it up with. Uh, it's basically if you guys have ever eat, had a Bloody Mary, I think that's really the only time uh, these filthy goyim ever you know go for authentic horseradish. Um, but like. Basically, the way I used to do it is I'd mix together some of the Gold's White horseradish, which is a classic. It's got the best flavor, and then I would cut up oh, some the prepared stuff. No, and then I would cut up some fresh stock on the spot, and I would use both oh. of those. The Gold's White horseradish is legit, dude. That's some delicious shit right there. Yeah, it is. But what I'm saying is, like, you could do if you do it. Um, with the horseradish, like the, the the raw pieces, then it's I, the proper amounts and stuff like that. I think is much less, and also it's actually like a nice nice little thing. Like put some of those those scrapings of the root on the lettuce with the haroset, and that that's delicious. For like I could I could, I could eat. Korok sandwiches for days. Oh no, I, I can do it once at at the at the event. Um, but the horseradish has a bit of a thrill to it. That's fun to see how much of it you can handle. Um, yeah. All right. So, what other tips do you have to the people? They're at home. Uh, they're bored out of their fucking minds. They just listen to us talk about Passover. That's how bored they are. That's how desperate they are to get through quarantines in their shitty apartments or homes or maybe they're much well much wealthier than us and uh they've got beautiful homes and they all got hot girlfriends like that dude at the beginning of that zoom meeting maybe they're living the most terrific and unbelievable lives um but what kind of you got any cooking tips for them or just getting through this tips what do you got for for the people cooking tips um i think you just gotta like kind of Experiment with some like new recipes and and mix things up and keep things fresh. That's really what uh, um, I think is the key to like keeping your sanity. When in, I was uh, in the food department, when I was back in my apartment, I was having fun with that pressure cooker. I was pulling out giant roasts and like whole yeah. things of chicken. Uh, but now that I'm back in my parents' house, not as much uh, not as much good bread and not as much cookies. But I'm eating pretty good. I mean, like, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm still, I'm still getting fat. Are you just like, are you just eating stuff that's that's around, or you're actually 
preparing some stuff. No, there. I don't. Have, I don't have to prepare shit. My mom, my mom and sister, <laughs> they're fucking. They're making it happen every day. My sister makes lunch every night. My mom makes a good dinner. This is good living. You're living life. You're you're living your best life now. I am. No joke. I uh, I get prepared meals now. I never got prepared meals in my apartment. I'm gonna end up saving money. I, if I could somehow get out of rent, I would save so much money over because you know I'm not. I haven't spent a dollar yeah. since I'm home. What are you gonna spend money on? Obviously, exactly. Um, I actually made a nice threw together a nice little little lunch today. It was kind of like it was a Shabbos lunch, kind of on the fly. Um, but but I put out a nice spread. We had. Uh, the main focus was like deli sandwiches, but nice. like I'm, I did like a whole, um, a bunch of uh, like sides and like sauces and and uh, accoutrements and toppings. And did the kids appreciate like, uh, it though? Did they see the craftsmanship, or did it completely go over the, their seven-year-old heads? So one kid, you're saying the kids or the wife? I guess hey, everyone who was there, or it's enough to do it just for you. That even if they oh, yeah, can, I I definitely appreciate it the most. I think my wife, right behind me in appreciation, she definitely like was like, "Oh, this is a nice, nice spread," and like she even she even mentioned it like l- later in the day, like this evening, like lunch was really good. Like that was that was really nice, and it was really good. Like fuck yeah, um, and then the kids. The other one didn't eat any of any of that stuff, and then the one that does eat, she just really liked uh, having like a lot of salami. <laughs> like had some more of that meat. <laughs> Didn't care about the presentation. She literally just—it was like just a plate of of, of salami. salami. Two two uh, servings with um, with ketchup. Yeah, like I made like a. Um, First of all, the, I know you, this is something you always appreciate, um, the the bread aspect of it. All right. I, came, I, I found my way into um, what turned out to be, the name of it was act, turned out to be like the perfect um, bread and matched the description perfectly. Um, I was at, where did I, I got the rolls from, it was a... Uh, came from Whole Foods because it was the Amazon delivery. Right. But they were called de- the only thing on the front of the package, it just said deli rolls. And I was oh, like, perfect. you fuck this up. And the rolls were actually perfect. It was like the perfect mix between a collar roll and a Kaiser roll. Oh, because it, it had like, it had a little bit of a crustier edge, but the inside had that like mush factor of a challah bread. Exactly. It had the softness, but also had the, like, stability that, like, if you put too much, like, and I, I sauced it up nicely, it didn't, the integrity of the roll didn't, was not, salved, it was not like, um, it, it just didn't, it didn't, it stood its ground, and it, it held up through the entire sandwich. My, so uh... Great. My last last Shabbat, my mom had this big, uh, like a pull apart challah. If you've never had a pull apart challah, of course, basically, we love the pull apart challahs. But just uh, the people out there probably aren't familiar with it. It's like the size of a full size big challah, but you can pull off pieces, and now it's like you got a roll. 
But what's nice about this collar roll it's is like that mo- it's monkey bread. Oh, okay. I'm not but, familiar uh, with monkey, monkey bread, it's but okay. Monkey collar bread. All right, but so here's what I was right? doing. Like it's, this in, is, it's in a circle. Yussel, this is going to sound crazy to you. You ready for this? Probably not, but go ahead. Okay, imagine the middle piece of a pull apart collar, which is the best piece. You know, because yeah. that's uh, no. Cr- oh, yeah. Okay. Now, slice it vertically. So you're slicing it down the middle, but you're slicing it down the middle from like, you know, from the top to the bottom, right? Yes, yes. Okay, now you put those two pieces on its side as your piece of bread. You put your shit in the middle, and then you really smush it together so like that outside gets all compact. Uh, Oh, beauty. That's like, um, it's a... Basically, like turns into like a dinner roll. I would say. Well, it just uh, it can it compacts in this way where the outer edge is just a like a thick piece of <laughs> dough. It's real doughy. Ah, uh, delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it, you make like doing it on that. It like it's like a slider in a sense. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a slider on a good Hawaiian roll. All right. Anything else to throw out there? If not, have a great holiday. And, uh, well, before I cut you off, anything else? Uh, no, there's one thing that I, I think, no, no, we're, we're done. But, um, shit, there was one thing in the middle that I was, I made a mental note that I needed to tell you something that was like, just, it was like, ah, fuck. It was not for like, uh the show it was something it was something something very Jewish crap whatever it might come to me and I'll tell you later eat some herring we'll come back to you right away that's what happens <laughs> <laughs> alright okay, okay. I, I put some I put some Rene's on that uh, on my deli sandwich today uh the red red crane or the white crane red crane what kind of? I don't know if that's a bold move. What was on the? What else was on the sandwich? Uh, well, the hernes was yeah, the red mixed with mayo on the spot, and because uh, by the way, the white, the white block, the white mixed uh, with mayo, turkey deli, turkey bacon, and salami. Yeah, that that's okay. Because the white with mustard, yeah. The white mixed with it is now you got. <laughs> Now you got a perfect horseradish sauce for meatballs, roast beef, um, turkey, maybe. But I, I see what you did there. I can respect it. Yeah, it was it was dandy. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening, and uh, good luck with the rest of quarantine. Oh yeah. Cut that other shit out. What other shit? My, my thirty second, just trying to gather my thoughts. No, no, no. That was a peaceful 30 seconds. I think people will be able to take a deep breath and feel relaxed. Feel relaxed and lost at the same time. Uh, great. They'll, listen, they'll listen to it on repeat and meditate. Yeah, well, I'll also have to probably listen to it, and then at that 15-minute mark, it'll jog my memory to uh, figure out what I want to tell you. Maybe... When other people can't remember stuff, they'll be able to play that moment, and it will just magically come to them. Right, like it's it's a, just a memory jogger. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't f- remember where your keys are. You play that moment. You can't remember your wife's birthday. You play that moment. Boom! It just oh, magically comes clearly to you. Didn't, it clearly, it clearly didn't help. 
Because here I am still not remembering it. So. You're, not, you're not sure what kind of a condiment to put on your sandwich? You play that moment. Whatever you got to figure out in your oh. brain, that should be the backdrop for thinking. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, let's go out on a high note. Catch you later, buddy. Later. <laughs> All right, let me turn this off. Anything else, Mr. Feldstein? <laughs>